Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. On this show, as U.S. activists respond to the recent massacre in Gaza by ramping up the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement, they are opposing a bill advancing in Congress that would strip Americans of the right to boycott the apartheid state of Israel. We speak to Benjamin Douglas with Jewish Voice for Peace. This is unconstitutional, and it is also an attack on the cause of justice. And media critic Janine Jackson on new threats to reporters and journalism in the United States. That's not how journalism works, that the state determines which reporters it will allow access to information. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and this week the Trump administration did its best to push around world leaders, push around football players, and literally push reporters out of a press conference. There's a lot going on, but we're going to start today with international news with the author and historian Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, as we go to broadcast, the world breaking news is still the cancellation of the planned summit between Donald Trump and North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. You are correct. It was always going to be difficult to have the summit take place because there was a different understanding between the two sides about what denuclearization means. For North Korea, it means denuclearization of the entire Korean peninsula, including U.S. forces in South Korea. For the United States, it basically means North Korea getting rid of its nuclear facilities. Uh, That was a difficult gap to bridge. Similarly, John Bolton, the Trump National Security Advisor and Vice President Michael Pence made a blunder when they kept suggesting that Libya was the model for denuclearization of North Korea, when we all know that after Libya gave up its nuclear facilities that helped to facilitate an invasion in 2011 and the murder of the leader, Colonel Gaddafi. So given that, it was going to be difficult to have the summit. And then there are the related tensions with China, with Mr. Trump blinking on the trade war and the Pentagon disinviting China from Pacific War Games and the Trump administration blaming China for backing North Korea, and all of that was adding up to what we apparently are facing today, that is to say the summit is canceled. Well, with Pompeo's statements, Bolton's statements, Trump's statements, I mean, I just kind of felt like I was looking at a childhood episode of The Bully in the Playground, except for this is like the bully on the global stage especially with the week starting with Pompeo's really bombastic statements. I, it, just, it just didn't seem like uh, they were being serious. Speaking of Pompeo, obviously this North Korea crisis is bleeding into the crisis with Iran. 
it's not only his statement, which you correctly denote as being bombastic, it's also the rift that it is causing with the European Union. That is to say, as we talked about some days ago, Chancellor Merkel was in Moscow recently uh, discussing Iran with Vladimir Putin. As we speak, she's in Beijing, presumably discussing the same issue. Uh, French President Macron as we speak, is in St. Petersburg conferring with uh, Vladimir Putin about Iran and related matters. And the Europeans recognize that this crisis with Iran has everything to do with them in the sense that Total, the French oil giant, is being compelled to cancel contracts with Iran. Likewise, the Western European competitor to Boeing, uh, speaking of Airbus, is being compelled to do the same thing. And so Mr. Trump is managing the difficult feat of isolating the United States at this very tense moment. Well, I guess that isolation extends to our own hemisphere. As we discussed last week, uh, Nicolas Maduro won uh, his election to continue as Venezuela's president. And that, of course, is not being recognized by the United States and Trump and his cabinet is continuing very harsh words and now new sanctions against Venezuela. Not only that, but Caracas expelled a number of U.S. diplomats. The United States is expected to do the same thing. But U.S. policy is incoherent because the pressure on Iran and the pressure on Venezuela is driving up the price of a barrel of oil. That's going to benefit ultimately both Venezuela and Iran, not to mention Russia. The ultimate victim, it seems to me, in many ways, will be the U.S. driver and the U.S. consumer who sooner rather than later may be compelled to pay $5 a gallon for gasoline at the pump. Since we're mentioning oil, I get the impression that the United States is betting on its, its own capacity for developing the shale oil market, but that doesn't seem to factor in as far as gasoline prices? Well, no, it's not going to be an alleviation for the U.S. consumer, although it will line the pockets of Texas oil billionaires, some of whom are very close to Donald J. Trump. I guess Mr. Trump feels that that's a trade-off. That is to say his friends in Texas will benefit, even though it's also apparent that Caracas, Tehran, and Moscow also will benefit. But not his base. Of course. Of course not. Uh, Let's be serious. Okay. All right. I'm being serious. Uh, I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. On the domestic front, owners of 32 teams of the National Football League announced Wednesday that teams with players making any type of protest during the national anthem would be fined and players could be fined further by their teams, even though the new rule allowed for players to choose to not to be on the field and stay in the locker room until the start of play. The announcement was widely seen as a capitulation to Donald Trump's recasting of player protests against 
police terror as a protest against the flag or military. Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation, told an audience in Northwest D.C. on Wednesday night that the new rule is a violation of players' constitutional and labor rights and may not be enforceable. What they're talking about doing is erasing players' rights, not just as citizens of this country, because this is an attack on their constitutional rights, their freedom of speech. They are also, and they're not just erasing their presence as black men who are trying to impose a discussion that this president and this country does not want to talk about, and that is the killing of unarmed black people in this country, but it's also erasing their presence as labor, as the people who we show up to see every Sunday, because this is in the collective bargaining agreement that they have the right to do this, and yet they are saying that, that, no, the collective bargaining agreement doesn't matter, your concerns don't matter, you, in effect, do not matter. The NFL announcement was made just before the Milwaukee Police Department released video of NBA player Sterling Brown being tortured with a taser after a dispute about a parking ticket. Brown said that he plans to file a lawsuit because his visibility as an athlete allows him to speak for everyday victims of police terror who do not attract media attention. Related, Black Lives Matter activists here in D.C. have been frustrated in their efforts to bring attention to two recent police-related deaths of young black men. According to a statement released by Black Lives Matter D.C. and the Stop Police Terror Project, on Wednesday, May 9th, an off-duty officer with the Metropolitan Police Department opened fire in Northeast D.C., killing 24-year-old Daquan Young. Witnesses report that the officer, quote, shot wildly as children ran for their lives, end quote, and that the officer reloaded his weapon and continued shooting after Daquan Young was on the ground. This incident followed the May 4th killing of Jeffrey Price, in which MPD's narrative of innocence directly contradicts witness accounts, the statement said. Both groups recently filed a lawsuit against the D.C. government for its failure to collect stop-and-frisk data required by district law. And while Congress has failed to address police killing unarmed men, women, and children, the House of Representatives recently passed the Protect and Serve Act of 2018 by a vote of 382 to 35. The act, a congressional Blue Lives Matter bill, would make it a federal crime to assault a police officer. The Senate version of the bill which also has broad bipartisan support, goes even further, framing an attack on an officer as a federal hate crime and making police a protected class. Ajamu Baraka, national organizer for the Black Alliance for Peace, spoke to WPFW's Voices with Vision about the measure. This turn last week uh, was really the first example of that uh, racist movement now being transferred to the federal level. Uh, And the fact that these members of the Congressional Black Caucus who understand that this is part of a racist racist narrative and a racist agenda, for them to, to embrace this and to support it is another indication of the political bankruptcy and moral uh, degeneracy of that congressional uh, entity, and they need to be called out clearly. In other human rights issues, 
faith leaders, and other community activists in the D.C. area staged an action at a D.C. council hearing on Tuesday about huge increases in water bills that they say are threatening to displace churches and residents. Organizers with Empower D.C. and Faith Strategies said that the district's Clean Rivers Impervious Areas Charge fee has increased 2,000% over the past few years. Now some churches are being forced to pay $2,000 a month for this fee alone. We ask now, God, in some way that you reach into the hearts of these who have this legislative authority. They might think long and hard about how the citizens who sit in here are suffering and languishing under these imposed financial obligations. God, help us, please. Stand with us, please. Let them know that we're not going to let anything or anybody turn us around because right is right and justice is justice. Yeah. And we Cemeteries have been charged as much as $19,000 a month. Organizers said that the problem is being caused by the failure of the district to pay the bill for a $2.7 billion water infrastructure project, leaving ratepayers to foot the bill. Organizers added they are seeking $40 million from the city in the D.C. budget to pay down the expense, leaving less of the burden distributed to ratepayers. And finally, in culture and media, the Poor People's Campaign is sponsoring a justice arts program every Thursday night here in D.C. and in participating cities and towns around the country. The 30-day launch campaign is culminating in a mass rally on June 23rd at the U.S. Capitol. More information is at poorpeoplescampaign.org. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, not forgetting Gaza and fighting back with the boycott divestment sanctions movement. Stay with us. Ain't gonna let nobody No Not, no, no Ain't gonna let nobody I'm gonna keep on walking Keep on talking Marching up to freedom land Ain't gonna let nobody On the ground, on the ground show.org. I'm Esther Ivarum. And 11 days after Israel murdered more than 60 unarmed protesters in Gaza on May 14th, the U.S. corporate media's muted and often twisted initial response to the massacre has given way to deafening silence. In contrast, communities standing in solidarity with the Palestinian people are seeking ways to support the movement to hold the apartheid state of Israel accountable 
for this massacre and all of its crimes against humanity. With me to give us an update on the most successful pressure campaign, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Movement, is Benjamin Douglas, an organizer with the D.C. Metro Chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Welcome back to the show, Ben. Many folks are frustrated, wanting to do something, make some kind of response to this recent massacre in Gaza. So if we could tell them three things right off the bat, what can people do? Thank you for having me, Esther. A pleasure, and uh, amid these dark times, to know that people are out there fighting back. I would say three things I would recommend um, right off the bat. Um, One of them is to shift the conversation, just engage with people you know, friends, relatives, especially people who are, you know, of a liberal bent and, you know, outraged by the overt racism of the present presidential administration. Ask them why the supposed opposition party is endorsing effectively the same type of rhetoric, the same type of racism. So shift the discourse on hashtag the resistance and why someone like Nancy Pelosi blames Palestinians when they're murdered, as you stated, by the Israeli occupation army. The second thing I would recommend is boycott consumer products. Two I would highlight right now, Sabra Hummus. It's not only bad hummus, it's also owned by a company that supports the Israeli military. Ahava Cosmetics um, also comes from the Occupied West Bank. Boycott these companies, stop buying them. They're alternatives, and so so encourage people to do that. And the third thing I would say, start shifting the discourse around Congress and what it can do. There are people in Congress who are pressuring it back. There's uh, H.R. 4391, um, which is a resolution calling attention to Israel's discriminatory court system and its impact on Palestinian minors. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not always a call-of-Congress type of person, but, you know, this is an organizing tool. There are a number of co-sponsors, including right here in the, uh, the D.C. metro area, uh, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton and Congressman Don Beyer called on this. And it's really linking the question of our government's unconditional aid to Israel to specific human rights violations, particularly directed against Palestinian minors. It is very inadequate at present, you know, in terms of what we're up against, but it is a great start. And some courageous voices from the Progressive Caucus have raised that. So I want to raise attention and everyone should speak out and get their, their members of Congress to endorse too. So why don't we now just back up a little bit and give people a brief overview of what the BDS movement is. I understand it contains three components, academic, cultural, and economic boycotts. Uh, Yes, exactly. So after Palestinians have tried all manner of opposition and fighting back against Israel's dispossession of uh, the bulk of the Palestinian population in 1948, the occupation of Palestinian territories since 1967, that's the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and uh, the ongoing discriminatory regime inside Israel for uh, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel. And so 2005, when things were, uh, as they are now, looking very dark for the Palestinian national movement, a group of civil society organizations, and that's not just NGOs, it's, it's labor movements, it includes uh, religious organizations and groups affiliated with political parties, uh, endorsed what's called the uh, Boycott National Call, or the um, the BNC Call. And it is a call for people of conscience around the world to boycott products that are complicit in these Israeli policies, that is, the denial of the rights of the refugees, the occupation of West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and the inequality inside uh, what is called 48 Israel. 
and also to push for divestment for institutions to stop investing in, in companies or, or entities that are complicit, and also a state level uh, to apply sanctions. Um, and obviously that's a very ambitious goal here in the United States, but it's not impossible, and I can, I can talk about that in a second, but that's what the boycott divestment sanctions call is. It has a, I would say, near consensus in Palestinian civil society. Um, it is not just some a particular movement. It is something that is endorsed by a variety of movements, and it's it's being answered by people of conscience uh, all around the world. So you mentioned earlier the legislation in Congress, but there are other links here. So I wanted you to give us an update on the latest with the Occupation Free DC campaign. We've mentioned it before on the show, and tell us what that's about and where it is right now. Yes, uh, absolutely. So. A number of organizations, and in particular Jewish Voice for Peace National, have called attention to an ongoing practice where police leadership across the United States engage in training and seminars with Israeli police, military, and intelligence. The largest of these is put on by a so-called civil rights organization, the Anti-Defamation League. It's, um, it's civil rights commitments. I mean, they do some good things, but the civil rights commitments have traditionally included things like uh, opposing affirmative action and spying on, on uh, Arab American organizations. So it's, it's kind of strange that it's still labeled as such, but this is one of their more egregious offenses. They're pushing for the police at various municipality, county, and state levels across the United States to go on training with a military that is occupying the Palestinian people. And so the D.C. version of this, um, and it's been endorsed by 15 organizations in D.C., um, Palestinian organizations, civil rights organizations, um, uh, Movement for Black Lives, Black Power organizations, and, uh, of course, Jewish Voice for Peace DC. It's called Occupation Free DC. And what we're calling on is for this training to stop. So there's a website, occupationfreedc.org. You can endorse an individual if you're listening now and you live or work in DC, have ties to the district. And um, we're saying that this is not something that we stand for. It is... On the one hand, it is normalizing and, and reinforcing this occupation that we've seen show its, its, its most brutal form here in Gaza recently with the killing of unarmed protesters, but uh, you know, has, has many forms, none of which should be blessed as, as, as a goal. And it's also, I think, uh, a very pernicious thing for, for police here. Lord knows we've got enough problems, and to have you know, a training with a police and military uh, that engage in in racial and ethnic profiling, not in some way they can keep under the radar, but very overtly, legally, to have that type of training, I think, is, is a pernicious influence. So we're calling on, um, on the police to stop doing that, and we're also calling on the council and people of conscience across the district to put whatever pressure they can to make it stop as well. Now, some municipality, I think it's in North Carolina, they recently did pass something like this, right, where they are basically banning their police from going to Israel. Yes. They called it demilitarized Durham, and um, they wound up getting top leadership, civilian and actually some police, on board with a commitment to a number of measures, including among those that the Durham police, which had formally participated in these so-called counterterrorism trainings in Israel, cease doing so. So it's a, it's a great victory, and that's what I was saying about, you know, boycott is something we can all do with our dollars. Sanctions sound so ambitious. How are you going to get any government entity in the United States of America to take a stand? Well, it just happened. 
and I think that's a real model for the rest of us to, to really act in this level we can we can win these. We also had reported that our mayor, Muriel Bowser, had joined a petition of governors around the country to basically criticize or denounce the BDS movement. Did she ever rescind that signature or her denunciation of the BDS movement? Unfortunately, she did not. Uh, We called out, we met with um, other people from the mayor's office, but um, we could not get a meeting with her. We had a petition. And I would say on two levels, because on, on one level, even if this were a boycott, I were not convinced is a necessary cause for justice, as I believe the BDS movement um, in boycott is, the very act of having the chief executive, uh, having the mayor just go out and condemn people um, engaged in civil society and make implicit accusations of bigotry because of their vision of human rights is, I think, improper. So on that stand- standpoint, it's you know, using the bully pulpit to attack uh, our civil liberties, and those are under attack in all sorts of ways elsewhere. So it's, it's not like it's an idle threat. There are people actually prohibiting certain forms of BDS and trying to use the state to enforce that, So, including a lot of those governors who signed the letter. The other thing is, yeah, it's obviously, this is a state that's, that's oppressing people, and so it's, it's very disheartening to see the mayor of D.C. with a, a large progressive population here, and certainly people who don't stand for for the sorts of things that Israel's doing in Gaza, to see her condemning that. And no, again, she would not, would not meet with us. Did she give a statement about why she is signing this? Or I guess just signing the, the petition is, is giving her reason, that she believes what the petition says. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, this, I, I'm, I'm unaware of any particular stated justification for it. And the text, I think, speaks loud and clear that they think that I mean, effectively, they think that Israel should be immune from the same types of civil society pressure that we can we can bring to bear on any country. Hmm. And then also, I want to want you to give us an update on that legislation that Ben Cardin, one of the I think Maryland senator, had endorsed or or proposed around also criminalizing any participation in the BDS movement by Americans. That would be a crime to to engage in a boycott of Israel. Yeah. So effectively what the initial legislation said is that if you're following the call of an international international governmental or non-governmental organization to boycott Israel, so like the UN Human Rights Committee, for instance, if you're following their call, then it would be illegal. And they kept saying that... The, the propaganda on this, uh, particularly coming from Senator Cardin, has been out of lines with reality. And um, I, I think that's, that's a euphemism. And uh, he, he was saying things about how it's protecting companies from pressure by the UN. But first of all, it wasn't just companies because it listed the prison sentence as one of the penalties. And second of all, it's not protecting anyone if you're criminalizing it. it the, the goal was not to protect anyone. It was to effectively strong arm them out of doing it. And so not like the UN or any of these particular international governmental organizations can strong arm people into doing things. It was to try and, I think, suppress BDS. So they issued a revision in March, and and Cardin kept talking about how he supports civil liberties, you know, talked to the ACLU, this and that. ACLU immediately uh, put out a statement, immediately. uh, The new Israel Anti-Boycott Act is still unconstitutional. Now, they did take out the prison sentence, and they're trying to clarify that it refers to commercial things. And that is, I think, I suppose you could call it progress, that they're not talking about criminalizing it, but 
it's an attack on uh, the First Amendment. It's an attack on our free speech rights and our right to boycott. And, you know, boycotts work through pressure on commercial entities. That's how they succeed. Um, you know, uh, as the saying goes, that's where the money is. So if we want to actually put economic pressure on Israel, it would involve pressuring companies to do that. So, unfortunately, that seems to have gained it some strength in Congress, um, and it, it has a large number of endorsers, uh, 55 in the Senate, and if I have the exact number in the House, um, 287 for the, the, the version of that House. So that is very ominous. And again, um, talking about Congress people around here, uh, Steny Hoyer, Anthony Brown, Don McEachin, not, not too close, but they have all co-sponsored. So let our voices be heard. This is unconstitutional, and it is also an attack on the cause of justice and any attempt to oppose the, the murder of those people in Gaza that we saw recently. Wow. So, yeah, I, I guess I would like to be able to follow up more on that and kind of see the new version of how they've kind of twisted it to be more acceptable to people. And so we can let more people know about it. I keep hearing about all these really serious, odious pieces of legislation just in passing. Like, you know, it's almost by accident that I hear about it. So given that, I, in preparing for the show, I just really wanted to know how how we can ramp up the BDS movement. Those of us who support it, those of us who want to be involved in it, how can we, in this climate, support it? And I know we gave people three quick things at the beginning of the segment. But to wrap up, I'm just wondering, can the list of products, for example, be expanded? I'm wondering if it's time to expand it and to bring in more things that people can boycott. All right. So the one I'll send is uh, bdslist.org. So the first one is bdslist.org. bdsmovement.net. Uh, They've got a a section, get involved, know what to boycott. And bdsmovement.net. So what I'll also emphasize is our individual consumer decisions can make a huge difference if we act together. So working with organizations uh, that endorse this to get joint targeting, I think, is, is so much more effective and if we find specific targets. So... I mean, a lot of organizations here in D.C., and there's a lot of organizations that, that are falling under the General Movement for Black Lives platform. There's Jewish Voice for Peace. There's the Democratic Socialists of America, American Muslims for Palestine. These are all organizations that I think people can look to tap into that have endorsed some version of the boycott. And I would also say that in terms of fighting back on the civil liberties front, the Virginia Coalition for Human Rights and the Freedom to Boycott Maryland Coalition, also known as Marylanders for BDS, are two great organizations, if you're in, in Virginia or Maryland, to fight for civil liberties, particularly against this type of repression. So, you know, I think aligning with these calls and trying to join up with others to make the dollars we spend uh, have a direct impact by withholding them collectively, that's really the path forward. Yeah, and I should mention for our listeners who are outside of the D.C. area, that website you mentioned, bdsmovement.net, also has a link where you can try to find organizations in your area, right? Yes. And yeah. lots of resources around. 
And we actually even haven't had time to mention the cultural and academic boycotts, but I know that uh, recently the actress Natalie Portman had drawn criticism from Israel because she decided that she wouldn't go there to accept some award there. And on that same website, there are a number of people listed who are joining the cultural boycott of Israel. And there's also academic boycotts being organized on campuses that are very, I know, probably more successful in Europe, but successful here also. Absolutely. Europe and, and all over. Uh, Gilberto Gil, the, the Brazilian musician, just announced he's not going to play in Israel. Right. And we're making huge gains here, here in the United States on college campuses. And, you know, inspiring for me, too, is places with large Jewish populations is a very vocal uh, contingent, you know, delinking that, that supposed association with Israel. And so there have been real uh, BDS gains uh, at George Washington, you know, just down the street from here, at Barnard College in New York. And so, and yeah, again, it's in other countries where you have someone like the Lord Mayor of Dublin who's, who's participating. South Africa pulled out its ambassador recently in response to Gaza. So that's on the state level. But we've got uh, real currents going here in the United States, too. Okay. Well, I've been speaking with Benjamin Douglas, organizer for the D.C. Metro chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Thank you, Ben, for joining me. Thank you so much, Esther. Solidarity. Preach, preach up. For God shall wipe away. Yes, sir. Every tear from the eye. Oh, yeah. Get ready. Get ready. For the revolution. For the revolution. What you say? You don't protest when you're saying there's gonna be a We might be upset, we might be hurting, but ain't nobody gonna take our joy. We are somebody, and we're getting ready to go in. Let me hear you say it. If you're just tuning in, this is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. I'm Esther Ivarum, and for this month's extended segment on media and culture, I'm joined by our contributor, Janine Jackson, Director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, and host of the nationally syndicated show, Counterspin. Welcome back to the show, Janine. As you know, there's a lot happening that is greatly impacting on our ability to know facts and reality so let's start with some issues that you'd like to highlight from Counterspin. Well, last week what I did with Counterspin, just being struck by, of course, as we all are, events in Gaza and the massacre there, I realized 
how similar the coverage was from five years ago, from 10 years ago, from 15 years ago. You know, so many of the kind of tropes and sort of patterns and practices that we see in media coverage, it's not that it's identical, that it hasn't changed at all, but the patterns haven't changed much. And so what I did was to actually re-air some archival segments that I had done on Counterspin uh, and that Counterspin had done over the years. And hearing them again, it, it was really striking, as I say, how, how continuous the control of U.S. media, the Israeli narrative, has, has had, you know, how, how consistent U.S. media have been in presenting coverage of events in Israel-Palestine from an Israeli point of view and how rarely uh, a Palestinian point of view even comes through. As one of the guests that we spoke to, Youssef Munair, who now is at the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, as he said in the interview, you know, you just don't hear about Gaza until there is something that is, um, you know, upsetting Israel or Israel is respond is acting in some way, you know, until there's violence. And so we don't hear about, as a U.S. audience, we don't hear about the day-to-day conditions in Gaza, which it could be termed violence as well, you know, the lack of access to electricity, to food, to medicine, the blockade that... To water. Yeah, water, exactly. About 95% or something of the water is undrinkable. I mean, grueling humanitarian crisis conditions, but they don't show up in U.S. media coverage as a story until there's a kind of a flashpoint, you know. And so it really, um, that way of approaching the events there uh, is, is really mitigates against the U.S. public who don't work to understand themselves independently. It really, it really works against folks understanding what's going on there. Um, and then when you see things so overwhelmingly um, sort of, hostily posed towards uh, Palestinians, uh, it just adds to the difficulty of seeing the people in Gaza as human beings and being able to see any kind of positive human way forward in that situation. Well, you know, I actually just screened the new documentary, Killing Gaza, and it does precisely what you're describing. It goes behind the scenes reporting during and during the aftermath of the invasion of Gaza in 2014 uh, by Israel. And it's a tremendously, it's a powerful, disturbing documentary. And I think a lot's going to come out of it in terms of just war crimes and crimes against humanity being revealed. Yeah, and really the missing piece in in, term, in terms of U.S. media coverage, which presents it as kind of a war between, or not kind of, but as a war in between, between Hamas and Israel, and who is left out of that, of course, are, are the Palestinians, everyday Palestinians themselves, who are just trying to have a life and have a future. So it really is a, it represents not just skewed coverage, but a really kind of a, a journalistic failure on just the narrative level in terms of letting folks know what's happening in this place uh, from day to day when the, when the cameras aren't there. 
Well, I have to say, I almost couldn't believe it. In this most recent massacre of people in Gaza, with more than 100 unarmed protesters being gunned down, murdered, I was surprised that, you know, so many corporate media outlets blamed Palestinians for their own slaughter. It was shocking, disgusting. I couldn't believe the coverage in the New York Times at some point, you know, blaming Hamas for blaming Hamas for Israel shooting down the unarmed protesters. So unbelievable. And I do think that folks are starting to see through it more. I think that the Palestinian point of view broke through perhaps a little bit more um, than it has in the past. And that might have to do with social media as on so many other issues. You know, you get to hear ideas that corporate media don't want to give an airing to, but they kind of bubble up, you know, and you get access to them in other ways, and that can wind up kind of influencing the bigger media uh, to some extent. But, yeah, what we saw and the reason that I went to using archival segments had a lot to do with, uh, unfortunately, how little has changed in terms of media framing of the situation in Gaza. So that was one thing. And then I'll just tell you another thing that another segment that we did on Counterspin that I thought was really interesting and not unrelated, you know, was the dearth of media coverage of indigenous people, of Native Americans here in this country. And so I had an opportunity to talk to Mark Trahant, who is a a real veteran um, Native issues journalist and journalism professor, but he's engaged now in the relaunch of Indian Country Today, which is this very important resource for, for Indian Country issues that had kind of, like so many media outlets, it went on hiatus, you know, it, they had funding issues, folks thought that maybe it had disappeared, and now uh, with others, um, they're, they're bringing it back, and it's, it's really exciting to see a, a new revitalized resource for Native issues uh, in the U.S. It's so important. It couldn't be more important, and it's not, and I, all I would say about it is, you know, it's not about looking backward. You know, when you talk about to Native American journalists and activists, they the one big thing they want to underscore is it's not about history. You know, indigenous issues, yes, are about grounded in history, as we all are, but there are plenty of issues that are about 2018, you know, what Native Americans are facing in 2018, and those things need to be covered, and that's what Indian Country Today is hoping to do. So I'm just excited for that relaunch, and um, I think folks should look out for that. Well, I will definitely be checking out that. Just always interested in getting new perspectives from, you know, any grassroots media outlets that I can I can get my hands on, and that you know we can have access to uh, with limited resources, limited distribution, and all the other issues that plague you know truly independent media. Now, I actually have two issues that I want to cover. Uh, The first is that on April 3rd, the Department of Homeland Security posted a solicitation for services for a private contractor to bid on media monitoring services. And the post stated that they were seeking a contractor to create a searchable database of information about journalists, social media influencers, and media outlets. It's supposed to be an archive of detailed information about the journalists, including contact information and past coverage produced by the individual. And then the department said that the database is also supposed to provide insight on the, quote, sentiment 
end quote, the sentiment of an outlet's coverage. So after Bloomberg first broke the story, Homeland Security spokesperson Tyler Holton stated that suggestions of anything nefarious attributed to this new database is in the realm of, quote, tinfoil hat wearing black helicopter conspiracy theorists, end quote. And, you know, most media is not wearing a tinfoil hat, you know, but are very concerned about this. So what's your take on it? Well, media should be concerned about this. And that, that tweet from the DHS, uh, I think, is just an example of this administration's idea of just, you know, go big. Just say the most extreme thing that you can. You know, say the other side is crazy, you know, and maybe folks will figure out that uh, the truth is somewhere in the middle, which in this case it absolutely is not. And you don't even need to go by me, USA Today, not really a hotbed of, of leftism, came out against this and said, you know, this is absolutely nefarious. This is worrisome. You know, what can this possibly be serving? How, how is this going to make us safer? And they remind uh, DHS in an editorial and readers, that in, 20, in 2009, the Pentagon actually had to kill a PR contract that they had that was the same thing. They were embedding, they were going to be embedding journalists with troops and they were, you know, with military troops, and they were vetting them based on the content of their reporting, for example. And just not as recently as 2009, folks were outraged by that. You know, that's not how journalism works, that the state determines which reporters it will allow access to information. And that's exactly what's happening here. And what I want to say is we don't have to wait to see how this is uh, going to play out because it's already playing out. We've already seen just yesterday, I think, the EPA pushed, physically had guards push an AP reporter out of a conference about contaminants in the water. An AP reporter and another reporter were physically kept out of a meeting. Hmm. Now, other reporters were in there, you know, as well. Uh, there was no explanation, oh, the room is full, you know, some sort of, you know, unbelievable explanation. But we're already seeing, in other words, this administration physically removing reporters, blocking reporters, obstructing reporters from doing the work that we need them to do. And when you see a database creation like this, what I think is most important is not to say, huh, they're collecting information about journalists. This is something that has the potential for abuse. This is already an aggressive act, the, the creation of the database. After all, every PR consultant in the country can get you a list of reporters, you know, and editors and their, their email addresses. This information is not private in the act of saying we are collecting this information on journalists and including the category of sentiment, in other yeah, words, a, yeah. a political categorization um, that a government agent is going to be making, that already is doing something. It's not getting ready to do something. It's doing something, and I think we should be very worried indeed. Well, similarly, I want to get to... Facebook and try to unpack it a little. I know it needs its own show, really. 
But basically, Mark Zuckerberg testified before Congress, and much of this was related to the so-called Russiagate investigation. But what's come out since then is really the opposite. It's it's shown all these connections that really have nothing to do with Russia or Russiagate, but rather that Facebook was collaborating with this right-wing funded outfit, Cambridge Analytics, out of the UK, and also Color of Change put out a report showing how the Facebook was discriminating against black activists, the movement for black lives, and and many issues related to that movement. And and then finally, in a very controversial move, the Facebook has announced that it's going to partner with the Atlantic Council, uh, an arm of NATO. And of course, you know, activists are, are scoffing at this and, and pointing out that NATO is not some impartial arbiter of what is good news or fake news or real news. And that, you know, this same council was, you know, behind that controversial prop or not website that, you know, listed, you know, right wing and left wing websites as uh, spewing Russian propaganda and also attacked individual progressive commentators. It, it, it's, it's really incredible. And as you're right, uh, what you say is right. There's a whole lot to unpack with Facebook. There's so many different issues. You know, ProPublic has also exposed and is continuing to expose how Facebook allows advertisers to say, you know, no blacks and, you know, to, to um, you know, redline essentially in their advertising and they claim they won't, but then ProPublica keeps testing them again and whoops-a-doodle, it seems like they're still allowing it, you know. The thing we have to all remember about Facebook is that it's not a town square. It's not, you know, just an arena in which anybody who wants to goes in and puts up a flyer and you and I are as free to see one of them as, as another. As we all have come to realize as we use it, you know, there are algorithms that are determining what we see in our feed and what we don't see. And so big picture and moving up to this Atlantic Council thing that you're talking about, we are seeing, what we're seeing is efforts to politically monitor and censor via access our news content. And so it only brings us back again to the question, the structural question of who's going to be bringing us news, who's going to determine what news we are allowed to see and hear. And if it's going to be Facebook, well, then we need a lot more transparency about how Facebook is making these decisions. So the latest thing which is, as you say, this intended to react to the you know, Russian infiltration of Facebook is this partnership with the Atlantic Council to monitor for misinformation and foreign interference. There's not a lot of explanation of what that's going to mean. There's a description that says they're going to design tools to bring us closer together instead of driving us further apart. Well, now, if you know what that means, you know, I mean, your, your guess is as good as, as mine. What we do know is that the Atlantic Council, which sounds like this very generic, you know, organization, is in fact a very interested party. They're funded by the U.S. State Department, the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force, along with, you mentioned, NATO. They're also funded by other countries, you know, United Arab Emirates, Britain, Norway, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea. So this entity funded by foreign governments is going to monitor media for foreign influence. I'm already 
confused, right? You know, <laughs> but we should be very, very concerned when any very interested entity, um, you know, the Atlantic Council has advocated on behalf of um, Erdogan in Turkey, for example. They gave an award to George W. Bush, you know, for his distinguished international leadership. This is going to be the entity that's going to determine what's fake news. And then you have to remember that's going to affect your ability to even get access to that news, to even see that news, because folks are going to rely on this, oh, it's been stamped, uh, you know, bad, it's been stamped foreign influence, it's been stamped misinformation. We have to worry all day about government agencies telling us what information is misinformation. Those are decisions that we need to be making as citizens for ourselves. Well, I would like to lighten up the mood a little bit as we always do and ask you about any any cultural things and and sure like the documentary killing gaza i I thought about that as being one of my things i said esther that is not lighter you know what i mean that is that is not light and it may be culture it may be a documentary but you need to find something else so tell me tell me if you have anything that you've seen this since we talked what struck me is um is uh, the celebration of of empire uh, that was the royal wedding um, oh, that yeah. has just happened, and my thoughts. I, I'm not. I'm not into that stuff. Um, but my thoughts were the people who are getting real mad, getting real hot, saying, "How dare you know black people." be paying attention to this, you know, because Meghan Markle is half black and you're seeing people saying, you know, we're up in this now, you know, the the royal wedding, as folks may or may not know, uh, featured an African-American minister who gave a, I mean, a Jamaican, forgive me, uh, a minister who gave what people thought was really kind of a black church style sermon, you know, that referenced Martin Luther King. There was a gospel choir that sang Stand By Me. It certainly had a more kind of 21st century um, feeling than many other, an example of um, pageantry of empire. But what what intrigued me was folks saying, how dare people pay attention to this and calling it essentially, you know, weapons of mass distraction was the phrase. And what I thought was, you know, that always has an implication. Whenever folks get mad at other folks for paying attention to something, uh, I always think that there's an implication there which says the energy that these people spent, you know, looking at Meghan Markle's wedding dress, if they had not been doing that, they would have been out in the street organizing, you know, for, for black power. And instead they were distracted by this, you know, it just, to me it seems, I'm a little dubious about that. You know, I, I very much understand the argument about distracting people with with shiny things when there are real issues to be fought but at the same time you know you could i think it's just practically more likely that somebody who doesn't think of themselves as political and doesn't read the paper and doesn't sort of think that way could be watching the royal the hubbub around the royal wedding and come across somebody saying hey you know what the history actually of british empire and black people is you know you know I think you're much more likely to, in your royal weddingness, come across something critical that will move you than you are to, to simply say, um, 
you're wrong. You know, if you're if you're black and you're into this, you're wrong and you should stop it. And if you would stop doing that, I'm quite sure that you would be doing something much more, you know, socially conscious. And I'm just not sure that that's true. And I don't think you ever go very far in kind of um, putting people down for their, their cultural enjoyments. And I found something good to mention is the documentary, the documentary, RBG. There's a new documentary out, RBG, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it follows her, her life and the tremendous schedule she keeps up, you know, to, you know, serve on the court. You know, she's working out. She has a private trainer. She's up till like four in the morning, you know, working on these types of, um, responses like the one she gave this week in response to this rollback of labor rights. I don't know if you saw that, but she puts in the hours and then she catches up on her sleep on the weekend. <laughs> and, and the, 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 the interesting I think I learned about from the documentary is that in, in many ways, what the, the type of law precedent that she sent, the type of arguments and her wins that she had in the 1970s were for women's rights uh, as the, were for women's rights, they did for, they did for women what Thurgood Marshall did for African Americans. So in terms of, of arguments before the Supreme Court or or at lesser court, at lower courts, she kind of created those legal milestones just as uh, Thurgood Marshall did. So I didn't know that and I didn't really know that much about her background, but it was a really good documentary and I, it was something that would make me feel good in, in all the bad news and turmoil that I'm normally covering. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to hear it. I have seen it on uh, the marquee here in New York. So I, I, I hope folks are seeing it and getting that positive feeling as well. We could sure use it. All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank Janine Jackson for joining me this month for this this extended segment on media and culture. Thank you, Janine. Thank you. And that will do it for today's show, but I want to thank my guests, Janine Jackson, Benjamin Douglas, and Gerald Horn. The music we played this hour included sounds from this week's Poor People's Campaign rally at the U.S. Capitol, including a recording of A Change is Coming by Sounds of Blackness, a recording of Revolution by Kirk Franklin, and a live performance by Yara Allen. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to complete versions of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Until next week, keep raising your voice. Peace. Peace.